Welcome to the Sperber Prize Podcast. I'm David Escobar. This season, I'll be talking to the winner and a few of the finalists for the Sperber Prize, which is Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs, detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. What happens when you're a foreign correspondent and see a war coming that the rest of the Western world refuses to recognize? That's the question Deborah Cohen tackles in her new book, Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, which chronicles a cohort of young foreign correspondents and their reporting during the rise of Mussolini and Hitler. These four cub journalists traveled across Europe, shaping how Americans understood the war. They broke taboos in reporting while having to navigate how to separate their personal lives from a chaotic world. Last Call at the Hotel Imperial's message is timely, and it gives us an insight into the reporters who rewrote the rules for journalism today. I'm joined now by the book's author and Richard W. Leopold Professor of History at Northwestern University, Deborah Cohen. Deborah, thanks so much for joining me. It's really a pleasure to get to talk to you. So I kind of just want to, before we really get into the weeds of this, I want to start with some background. After the Great War, World War I, foreign war correspondents were kind of this main purveyor of knowledge to Americans about what exactly was really going on in the continent. And as you do in your book, I want you to start kind of this conversation by just kind of breaking down this cast of characters. So in like a broader sense, who are these reporters we're talking about in the book? So this is a young group of Americans. They're in their 20s. They're born around the turn of the 20th century. And they decide that the place where everything exciting is happening is Europe. And they have to be there. Um, so they set off and they end up reporting pretty extensively from Europe as well as the Middle East and Asia. And sort of more broadly, just to sort of pull back still further, um, before the First World War, American newspapers had gotten their foreign reporting, oftentimes either from uh, wire services like Reuters or the Associated Press, or from national newspapers published in the country. And so what really changed after the First World War was that American newspaper proprietors felt like they needed their own eyes and ears abroad. They wanted their own American perspective on things, and that meant sending people to do the job. The cast in my book um, is really five people. The first is uh, John Gunther, who was a Chicagoan reporting for the Chicago Daily News. He made his name with a book entitled Inside Europe that was published in 1936 that promised to bring its readers all of the behind the scenes information from the European chancelleries, including a lot of gossip that he hadn't been able to report in the newspapers. The second person is Dorothy Thompson, who was famous as the first American woman to lead a major overseas news bureau. That was the news bureau for the Philadelphia Public Ledger in Berlin. She is also the first woman to have a political 
uh, column of her own, which she has from the late 1930s. The third person is Vincent Sheehan. Um, Vincent, otherwise known as Jimmy Sheehan, uh, is the guy who essentially, with a book entitled Personal History, so he's a foreign correspondent who goes all over the place reporting from anti-colonial movements. And in 1935, he boils down a lot of these experiences into a book called Personal History that really sets a template, the ways in which Americans think about the relationship between their own lives and the sort of big world out there. And the fourth person is someone who really isn't very much known today, but in his time was super famous as a man named H.R. Knickerbocker. Um, he was a Texan born and raised in Yoakum, Texas. And he sort of bursts onto the international scene as one of the daring do reporters of the 20s and 30s. And among his stories is a still disputed story about the um, Nazi elites removing assets from the country. He also predicts the Nazi-Soviet pact a few years before it occurs. So um, that's the main cast of characters. And then, of course, uh, reinforced with a great many others, uh, sort of big reporters at the time. Yeah. And I think um, you kind of already alluded to it earlier, but this is like where journalists wanted to be in that time. They wanted to go over to Europe. But I'm curious, you know, you kind of use the term like the, these cub journalists were really the ones that were like, I got to go make a name for myself. But was that really just the reason or was there kind of something more to it about going to Europe? Oh, I think most of them were to actually really thinking about making a name for themselves as reporters. What they're really thinking about was living in Europe. They were fed up with America. They were fed up with prohibition, with kind of small mindedness, small towns, and all of the glamour and the culture of Europe was what was beckoning to them. But more than that, they wanted to write the great American novel. So you can think about them as kind of the nonfiction counterparts to the lost fiction generation novelists like Fitzgerald and Hemingway. So they flew, they go over thinking that they're in for adventure. And along the way, what they find is really two stories. One of them is the rise of fascism, which they're reporting on from Mussolini's early days in the 20s. And then they find another story, too, which is the movement of anti-colonial nationalists like Gandhi and Nehru and the Rafi leader Abdul Krim um, against the big European empires of their day. And so they're reporting that story as well. Mm. And I don't think they could have even been slightly prepared for that. One of one of the reasons that Jimmy Sheehan's personal history becomes such a famous book is that he essentially portrays himself as a, just a complete idiot in college. He's at the University of Chicago. He comes from the small town of Payne, Illinois, in southern Illinois. He goes up to the University of Chicago. And, you know, he's like a frat boy or a would-be frat boy. Or he drops out of a frat when he figures out that there are lots of Jews in it. And then he spends his time partying and putting on musicals and that kind of stuff. So what he's trying to chronicle in this book, and I think this is what really resonates with other Americans who are beginning to become enmeshed in the world or to consider the world to be really crucial to their futures, is that sort of the dawning of the sense that your fate is wrapped up in what happens in northern Morocco, or your fate is really wrapped up in what happens in... My out in Italy in the Soviet Union, 
And so I kind of want to move into a little bit of what was going on in Europe at this time. I want to get later into this idea of objectivity because your book made me think about objectivity in a way I'd never thought about it before. And you already kind of talked about it, what these reporters kind of walked into, but I think it's worth noting the kind of three different ideals that are like swirling in Europe at the time we have democracy, fascism, communism. So what did this all mean for these reporters once they got there? Like, how did that change their assignment? They are all grow up in a sort of late 19th century liberal milieu, more or less. And so that is the baggage, political baggage that they bring with them. And they get to Europe, and as you say, it becomes clear to them really quickly that there's a three-quartered contest going on um, between democracy, fascism, and communism. And increasingly what's happening is that they're being sort of beckoned into that or pulled into that as the arbiters to pronounce for their readers on what's going on, who has the right, who has the better argument. And those readers aren't just... American readers in Iowa or Kansas or Illinois or New York, they're also an international readership um, in which American correspondents, because they're less subject to censorship regimes than, say, the British or the French, and they're less cozy with their government, um, and their newspapers are still operating, unlike the Germans and the Austrians eventually in the 30s, people are reading them to try to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And so they find themselves not just, you know, pronouncing on these kinds of political arguments, but also in a sense, trying to imagine what is the future actually going to be? I mean, they become, they have to figure out where's the next story happening. That's the normal job for a journalist, right, is having a good hunch. But people are asking them to see in their crystal ball and say, you know, if a war happens or when's a war happening? And if a war happens, who's going to win? Who are the combatants going to be? What are the Italians going to do? What are the Spanish going to do? And what you feel, or what I felt sitting in the archives, was just the incredible complexity of becoming a person who can predict the future. Because first of all, as you know, you're oftentimes wrong about it when you try to predict the future. And that's when you're wrong in print. How many times can you be wrong in print? Um but secondly, there's a kind of emotional toll that it all takes because they're always trying to figure out what happens next. As journalists, we often think about how, I mean, a lot of people want to report on things that they care about and you can really get wrapped up in your own emotions about things that you are reporting on, perhaps um, if you have strong feelings about something. And that it, it really, that makes me think a lot about kind of your, the way you explain ob- objectivity in the field. Um, it's, you know, we often think of it as something that is just, you know, objectivity is on the one side, subjectivity is on the other side, but there's so much more nuance than that. And I, I, I really like this idea that you got out of interpretive emotionalist journalism. Can you just talk about that a little bit, especially, I know you use uh, Dorothy Thompson as kind of an example of that. Can you just talk about her kind of experience with that type of journalism? Right. So we think about the critique of both sidesism or the view from nowhere as being something that is new. What you realize when you study the 20s and the 30s is that in a sense that critique is evergreen. It comes 
from this period. So these journalists are all raised in the big city newsrooms of the early 20th century, after the First World War, the enshrinement of objectivity, um, the sense that you know readers haven't really gotten the true story about what happened in the First World War. And so it's crucial to report both argument and counter-argument and report both sides fairly. And then, as I said, they go over Europe, they encounter the chaos of what's happening, and they have to try to figure out who's telling them the truth. I mean, that's a normal thing that for journalists have to try to understand. But where one side, let's say what Goebbels is telling you, Hitler's propaganda minister, is just a stream of lies, how do you report that? They're under a lot of pressure from their editors, even liberal big city newspaper editors like the Chicago Daily News, to give a sense of, well, what's the other side? You're telling me about all these, you know, Nazis beating up this and the other person, but what's the other side? So Thompson here is really interesting and really important. As I said, she switches from being a foreign correspondent to an op-ed columnist in the 1930s. So that gives her a lot more latitude where her opinion is actually what she's being paid for. And what you can see her doing, and she says this very explicitly in her wonderful, wonderful essay, her 1937 Dilemma of a Liberal. She says the world in her parents' time, the time that she grew up in, stopped at the front door and that you had a private life. And what she's trying to understand in this essay is what has happened to the relationship between the journalist's private life and what they're reporting on. And she's trying to also figure out, well, how can you render what it's like to actually live through this time without also telling people how the entirety of your life, she says, my relationship with my child, my relationship with my husband, everything seems of secondary importance to the crucial things that I'm seeing and I'm telling you about. Mm. And so what she devises in that period is a very emotional form of reporting. And it's not Thompson alone, it's many people, both men and women. In a sense, what they're doing is producing a kind of counter-narrative to the emotionality that people like Mussolini and Hitler are peddling. What Thompson is really interested in is how do you create a constituency for democracy? How do you actually make democracy something that is emotionally vital, that isn't just about whether you can afford a refrigerator? that isn't just the economic argument, um, but rather something that people will feel passionate about. That idea just like opens my mind a lot because that's something that has so much resonance with our current situation. Like, you know, the old adage, history is cyclical, but it's very true. And I kind of see your discussion of this post-World War I journalism in the context of today. And I'm curious, when you were writing this book, did you have those thoughts in your head? Like, what what was your thought process? Yeah, I did very much in the sense that when I was researching the book, especially in the summer of 2015, I was in Iowa, essentially falling behind candidate Trump. And it was the huge crowds, this sense of being, you know, witness to history, which I think a lot of people felt like at that point. And, you know, and it continued to feel like, of course, with the beginning of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. The dynamics of our own moment were very much in my mind as I was writing. At the same time, I didn't want just to write the book as if, as a kind of prehistory of our current moment, because it has its own integrity. For instance, people were 
completely obsessed with the viable option of Soviet communism, or maybe arguing about whether it was viable or not. I had a sort of sympathy for the position of the journalist that I might not have had had I written the book 25 years ago. I mean, I would have known it intellectually. I'm not sure I would have felt it in the same way. And I think, yeah, that that's what makes the book, I think, so personable. Like you have that kind of insight into perhaps what these people kind of were dealing with in the sense that, you know, they see things and are almost, for lack of a better word, being gaslit into believing that maybe maybe there's more to the story when, in fact, a reality and a truth can just be the truth. Right. And they are coping with um, yeah, the exigencies of reporting and trying to figure out what am I going to, what's my editor actually going to permit me to say. The last thing I want to ask you, I'm, I'm just curious, I think in a broader sense, um, about kind of the work that these people did. And, you know, we already kind of touched on how it's similar to the work that journalists have to do today. Um, but was there anything about this industry at the time, maybe the pace, the attention to detail of their work that felt different, um, especially when we think about modern day overseas correspondence, foreign correspondence? How different was their work from somebody like a John Gunther, H.R. Knickerbocker, the other journalists that you discuss in the book? It's a really good question because what these people are doing that I'm talking about in the book are laying down this glamorous view of the foreign correspondent. So it's precisely because of them that they become the subject for, you know, scores of Hollywood movies. And so for the foreign correspondent working now, the, you know, the field is a much poorer field. I mean, H.R. Knickerbocker managed to spend the equivalent of something like $90,000 today in a month in um, Ethiopia in Anas Ababa for his expense account, which of course, no newspaper would even begin to contemplate. Um, so they were well fit paid, they were famous, they became international celebrities. And they had, it wasn't that everyone believed everything that they said, but they didn't encounter the same kind of hostility that a foreign correspondent does today. The job of a foreign correspondent today is much, much, much more dangerous. So someone like H.R. Knickerbocker is thrown in prison in Spain on Franco's orders, more or less, um, during the Spanish Civil War for a weekend. But it's not the same as the danger of actually being kidnapped, um, you know, put to death, targeted specifically for being a journalist. People who are doing any kind of foreign corresponding today, war corresponding, are, you know, immensely heroic and braver than I could ever imagine being. But this generation that I'm talking about really sets, you know, they, they sort of set the mold on what a foreign correspondent is. Thanks again to Deborah Cohen for joining me, and thank you for tuning in. I'm David Escobar, and this is the Sperber Prize Podcast.